Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning in to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Barbara Fries. She's the author of Industrial Strength Denial. Corporations faced with proof they're hurting people on the planet have a long history of denying evidence, she argues. Blaming victims, complaining of witch hunts, attacking their critics' motives, and otherwise rationalizing their harmful activities. Denial campaigns have let corporations continue dangerous practices that cause widespread suffering, death, and environmental destruction, and by undermining social trust in science and government, corporate denial has made it harder for our democracy to function. It's a really great book, and I had a great conversation with Barbara about it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Barbara, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. You've written a new book, Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible from the Slave Trade to Climate Change. And it's interesting because you you talk about in the intro that some of the timeliness of this book is it gets at what where we're at and it feels like we're in this kind of post truth society, right? Where who know you know, everything is is considered to be fake news, where uh, you know, studies show the more education you get, the more confirmation bias skill you get and can choose your facts. And so it's interesting. It seems like this is one of these things where you're sort of highlighting a trend in and how corporations have functioned from, again, the slave trade all the way up to contemporary climate change and tobacco and and issues around automobile safety and things. And, and you're, it seems like you're getting it. You're trying to get at this sense that, like, look, this is... Um, where some of this, the malleability of truth and responsibility and causality and stuff happens. I mean, it happens right in the corporate kind of square, right? In, 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 the, in the kind of marketplace of commerce that we all are inextricably linked to. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I think that a lot of what we're seeing right now is fairly unprecedented in terms of a of a lack of of social trust and in, in a in a kind of shared reality. But I think that you have to look back at the past and that corporate denial has been leading to this for a very long time. And then, of course, it gets exacerbated by um, you know, cable news and social media and, and a lot of other things. But, but I don't think you can really understand where we are, especially around issues like climate change, without looking at the, the influence of corporate denial over the decades. It's interesting, too, because you talk about the corporate denial in, two, in, a, in a context of two sort of frames, causality and responsibility, right? Either it's a denial that we caused it, or if we did cause it, we're not responsible for it, right? Like, it, like if you, right. if you pin it to us, then we'll just say, well, we're not really responsible. These things kind of, you know, uh, you know, people are responsible agents and that sort of thing. I mean, how did you kind of come up with that framework? Well, I, I started out just collecting denials and, you know, from a lot of different industries and trying to figure out, well, what do these have in common? And I realized that to a large extent, you know, you had 
the science denial that has been, um, you know, documented by others for a while and around a lot of different issues. Uh, but then there were these other denials that really did not fit. And um, if you think about the tobacco industry, for example, obviously they denied that their product was causing illness or that it was addictive for decades. Um, but around that, there were these other denials that were almost more fascinating from a, a kind of psychological standpoint, like arguing that, well, if we didn't sell these cigarettes, those smokers would be doing something much worse. They'd be beating their wives or driving cars fast, or they'd be crack addicts or something. So um, that, that type of denial felt to me like clearly something that the industry needed to say to itself in order to kind of rationalize its its other kinds of denials. And I and I felt it was important to kind of look at both sides of that. I, I was intrigued. You know, I had no idea. You think of like, I think the kind of PR kind of denial campaigns and corporate evasion of responsibility. You think of this as a modern, a late modern development, but you, you point to slavery. And I was astounded at the kind of pitch campaign mm, that yeah, slave I traders did. I mean, I, I, I had no idea that there was this, like, I kind of, you know, that basically they were pitching this as if this was a wonderful benevolent thing that was, was actually really good for society. I mean, that, that I found that chapter uncanny. Yeah, I, I have to admit that research surprised me too and, and kind of horrified me. Um, and I want to be clear, we're not talking so much about slavery defense in this country, in the United States. We're talking about the British slave trade, where the audience for these messages, the, the British public and the policymakers, they didn't see any of this firsthand. And so what happened was you had an abolition movement. Uh, Britain was in charge, I mean, was the leader of the of the global slave trade at the time. Uh, in the late 1700s, you had this abolition movement tr directly challenging it. Uh, and that prompted this very well-organized campaign by the slave industry um, in writing. So we have all these pamphlets uh, defending what they were doing. And, and as you say, they portrayed it as not just good for society, but good for Africans, good for the slaves, um, portraying them as eager to be purchased and enjoying their festive uh, crossing uh, across the Atlantic and comfortable in their plantations. I mean, it was absolutely astonishing. Yeah, I mean that that was remarkable to me. Also, the the interesting thing too that that you write about tobacco and this capacity of the of the tobacco industry to you know, to deny that. I mean, what everybody knows that smoking kills you. <laughs> I mean, this is one of these things that we all like, it's just like, it's this, it's like the idea of clean coal. Well, there can't be clean coal because you look at, you touch coal and it's dirty, right? <laughs> there's no, so, you know, there's no, it gets on your hands. Like, you know, this is impossible, an impossibility, right? I mean, this is, and, and yet this is something that tobacco companies have persisted in with a kind of resilience that is remarkable, right? Well, they persisted in it for many decades. And what was amazing was that even though by the, you know, 80s, I think, 70s or 80s, nobody really believed the tobacco industry when they said there's no proof of, of harm, um, they were they still felt it was worth saying. And they did keep saying it for a while. More recently, the, the major tobacco companies don't deny the sort of core issue, which is that their product causes deadly diseases and that it's addictive. But what's what's amazing is that after so many decades of denial and and 
having their industry become so deeply entrenched, their product so widely used, um, they're still happily selling it and they're still making a lot of money. So the denial sort of took root, took root in society and, and created these barriers to more regulation and, and those barriers still exist uh, even after the denial, at least the core denial, um, has ceased. It's, do you think we're at a time where people are are more – I mean, it's interesting because I wonder with COVID and, and the sort of need for government intervention, I wonder if we're – in this place where we will look to the government to keep us safer and more and do more regulatory things. But, but that, I mean, it's remarkable that that has not been the history of the country, right? And corporations have had, I mean, it's interesting because you think about the way the country was founded in the 18th century. I do think the biggest probably threat to individual liberty was the crown, was a strong centralized government. Now it seems like I, I can't, think of many things the government stops me from doing it's but it's corporations right like i mean mm-hmm. passing i remember you know years ago they're fighting to just get gmo labels uh, to, to know what i'm putting in my body and corporations mm-hmm. being pretty successful at at prohibiting legislation like that i mean it feels like it's the multinational conglomerates that are the biggest threat to any individual's liberty more than the government yeah and and well i would expand it to be not just liberty but but security and safety and health health right yeah, I mean, all these other things. And, you know, you, you mentioned COVID-19 and what impact that's going to have. And I think that's a really interesting question and a, a kind of a hard one to answer. I mean, certainly one would hope that this leads to a more general recognition um, of our common humanity and the common risks we face and the need for government to coordinate a response so that we can minimize those risks and, and really save lives and, and avoid global catastrophe. Um, and, and I do hope it goes that direction. On the other hand, one of the chapters I wrote about was the financial crisis of, of 2008. And then, you know, that, and that was, in my view, very clearly caused by deregulation of that industry that let it do these terrible things and crash the global economy. And nobody and yet, paid. Well, nobody. And, and, I mean, I mean, the, the, the amount of like evasion of responsibility in that instance is remarkable, right? I mean, well, that is remarkable. And, and I have to tell you, though, what astonishes me more was that in two years, you had the Tea Party taking over, you know, a, a good chunk of the Republican Party. And instead of, uh, you know, the, the immediate political backlash being, we need government to protect us from industries like this, it became a political backlash against government. So that makes me a little bit um humble and concerned about predicting the impact of COVID on on the American public's attitude toward regulation and government right. generally. Right, because the Tea Party kind of reacted not against the speculators and the people that, that sort of abused the deregulation, right? Their target of their ire was actually the bailout itself. Exactly, yeah, which of course went to these industries, but then it, it got sort of redirected away from concern over the industries to concern over the government. Climate change is remarkable because we're not, you know, it's interesting that there's not a right or center-right party I can think of in the industrialized world, at least in the West, like in Europe and Canada, that that denies the reality of climate change. And again, they might debate uh, what exactly the response should be, right? And how much we should should curb the economic realities and and fossil fuel production and stuff. But but we have, I mean, it's interesting because in this country, we have a party that... By and large, a lot of people just 
thumb their nose at the science and just say it's it's a fantasy, yeah. which is remarkable. It it is absolutely remarkable, and I think it's getting better, but. You know, we've seen this come and go, and sometimes what happens is you'll see concern rising, and then there will be a global crisis that kind of distracts the nation into a different direction. Uh, I think you you could say concern was rising before September 11th, and then we stopped worrying about the climate so much and worried about terrorism and wars, and concern was rising before the financial crisis, and then we stopped worrying about the climate so much and worried about the economy. Um, hopefully, with with COVID, we will not stop worrying about the climate, but basically, maybe these two crises will reinforce each other and make it clear that we need government to help us. Yeah, I mean, it is in- interesting the the, uh, the the way that we again I mentioned a little earlier that that I, the research I've done is that actually education oftentimes doesn't help in the truth denial. It just sometimes makes your confirmation bias better. So like you, you basically right. just get, you get better at finding sources to justify the things you you're wanting to believe. Right. I mean, that, I mean, that is a scary reality. And you think like, Oh my gosh, how do we get out of the post-truth moment? If that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is a, that is a scary reality. I think that one of the things that can help us see our way through here, hopefully someday, is a certain amount of humility and recognition of our own biases, recognition of what our tribalism does to us, um, and hopefully being able to educate folks to accept a certain amount of uncertainty. And I think all of those things kind of help you sort of go back to basics and ask yourself, okay, why do I believe this again? What's the evidence of this? Um, One problem there, though, is that if you really are in kind of a, a cultural warfare situation where you've got two different tribes and one tribe is trying to be, uh, humble and open-minded, and the other tribe is not, then the other tribe really does have an advantage in in the marketplace of ideas. So, I, I don't think I've necessarily pointed the way out, but I think, you know, we we do have to really question our own biases and, and keep returning to, on the issues I'm concerned about, empirical reality and science and, and the evidence. What actually does it show? That's really difficult when you've got a, uh, issues that are so complicated that the average person cannot figure it out. You have to trust the scientists. Um, you know, in the past, what we've done is we set up systems so that the scientists would keep each other honest and, and they would come together in associations and, and task forces and groups and, and hammer things out. We would have, we have peer review and all of that. And, and that kind of uh, collective scientific assessment process was the way we resolved really difficult scientific uh, controversies and disputes. And, and I think the high point of that was protecting the ozone layer and regulating CFCs. Um, but after that happened in the late 80s and 90s, uh, then we really saw this backlash that attacked the very notion of these kinds of collective scientific assessments and and really prompted all kinds of cynicism and and distrust of of government of science of elites and i think that's you know one of the important factors to how we got here here today i was just re looking at a, a funny funny and, and horrific um youtube video 
of Trump when he was campaigning in 2016. He's actually campaigning in front of a bunch of coal miners, and he's got a coal mining helmet on his head and pretending to shovel coal. And, and then he takes it off and does what I think was just sort of this spontaneous rant about hairspray and how surely, you know, this hairspray, if I spray it, they say it affects the ozone layer. No way, folks. It's sealed up in my apartment. There's no way it could affect the ozone layer. Um, you know, this was decades after that science was settled. The, the chemicals had already been banned. Nobody was questioning this. The industry had accepted it long before. Um, but he was he was uh, uh, reacting to and, and perpetuating this notion that you can't trust science, and you certainly can't trust the scientific elite or the scientific establishment. Um, and you know when that when that happens when you no longer trust the institutions your society has put together to help you figure out reality then you're really vulnerable to your biases to your tribalism and to somebody who comes along and and can quite expertly appeal to those biases so um you know i, I think it's really critical that we we sort of shift the social norm back to trusting what large large groups of scientists who are working carefully together uh, conclude about these issues and, and not just tossing our hands up in the air. It's interesting. I feel like on a day-to-day basis, most people trust science more than they trust anything, their Bibles, their families, anything, right? Like they just uncritically, you know, they, they don't go, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get the new iPhone electronics from the people that brought us the electron or they don't think, oh my gosh, like I'm not going to, you know, like I'm not, I go to my doctor and they give me a prescription. Oh my gosh, it's, 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 it's a witch doctor kind of thing. Like, or, yeah. you know, I mean, most people have. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and that's so weird because that exists simultaneously with not trusting the views of these large scientific communities that, that get together and, and tell you things. And, you know, e- even if you're talking about an industry that that thrives on science denial, that, that depends on it. They never say you can't trust scientists generally. They never say you can't trust science. What they say is you can't trust their scientists. And they'll trot forward their own scientists who tell you exactly the opposite of what the, the scientific community has concluded. And that's where people get confused and people get paralyzed and the status quo gets maintained. Yeah, and that, I mean, this is one of the things, too, where it's interesting because you know the tribalism and and that kind of thing. Like, this is, I mean, I think think about our inability to deal with the COVID reality, you know, where we have the media. One group of of people say, if you want to open up the economy, you don't care about human life. And other people that say, if you want to close down the economy, you know, you... uh, you know, if you want to keep it closed, you don't care about the culture or the or the economy or other 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 thriving of other people. Like, it seems that that we're probably not going to have a vaccine anytime soon, right? The mumps is the fastest we've ever had four years, so we're going to have to come to some kind of public consensus, right, where we agree on the risks we'll tolerate and take together and how we'll keep vulnerable people safe. And it, with the kind of industrial strength denial you write about, like that, those kind of psychological habits seem to preclude any possibility of us getting to a kind of consent of the governed responsible place where we could figure out how to deal with the ambiguity of this pandemic moving forward, right? I mean, it just seems like we are so poorly situated to actually deal with this. Yeah, I think that the decades of building distrust has certainly made it particularly hard in this country to figure out how to handle a, a scientific crisis like this. That said, I have to say, it's it's kind of impressive how many people have in fact accepted the requirements to to stay indoors and whatnot. I mean, 
there really has been a, an enormous change in our lifestyles and, and in our economy because a bunch of experts told us that we needed to do this and the government said to do it. Um, so in, in some ways, I think if, if I had been... Thank God for panic. <laughs> For what? For panic and fear. Pa- panic. There you go. Well, it's partly panic and fear, and and certainly that's part of it. But it's also a certain amount of not wanting to spread the disease to others. I mean, there is, I think, a, you know, a glimmer of social responsibility here that I want to acknowledge and and um, you know and and recognize because think about for the youngest people, for example. Obviously, they're going to feel less at risk, and rightly so. Um, but most of them. We get paid a lot of attention to those who are breaking the rules, but most of them are are being pretty careful, and they don't want to spread this to their parents and their grandparents. So, you know, if you if I had been asked months ago, uh, how would America respond under these circumstances? I actually would have predicted more protests and more kind of civil disobedience. Now, who knows where things will be a month from now? But um, you know, tr- trying to trying to look on the the semi-bright side here, folks are, are adapting pretty readily, I think. Do you think it's that altruistic that people don't want to spread it, or do you think people are just afraid of getting it? I mean, I, Oh, I that's... think it's absolutely both. I think it's absolutely both. But if you're a young person, your risks from getting it are relatively low, and you know that, um, and yet mostly they're, they're still being you know, pretty pretty compliant with the requirements. So you have a, mo- a modicum of hope right now for yeah. the social yeah. fabric. Well, I, I work hard to maintain that modicum, Scott, and I have for decades. <laughs> I mean, you don't work on climate change without being able to, you know, fan up that little ember of hope into into more of a, a flame. Um, yeah. You you tell a remarkable story in the book about Ralph Nader and how, when you know in the auto safety kind of stuff when he's a consumer advocate and trying to get GM to to basically get design safer cars and take you know consumer safety more seriously that he's getting propositioned by women to go into their apartments to get into compromising <laughs> situations he's being like followed and all this stuff like like really creepy creepy stuff that it seems yeah. GM was doing to discredit him as a public figure yeah. Yeah, it was pretty uh, amazing stuff. GM had hired um, investigators, and and they had been asking questions of his friends and family, his high school principal, all kinds of different people. And and he was he re- he reported that he had been followed. The GM never admitted to that. And and in fact, all of the auto companies initially said, no, 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 we didn't do that because Nader go- went to the papers. The papers put it on the front page. The industry said, no, we didn't do that. But he had been scheduled to be a witness before Congress. And so Congress asked the Justice Department to look into this because you cannot intimidate a a congressional witness. That's illegal. So then uh, all of a sudden GM said, oh yeah, actually we did hire that guy and uh, we we did some of this stuff. And, And so the head of GM was brought before Congress and he had to apologize and um, yeah, it was a big, big deal. And, and you know, I think pretty much everybody at that era uh, acknowledged that particular controversy as helping lead to the, the passage, finally, of uh, auto safety legislation. And by, like, a unanimous vote in both houses, which, you, you know, imagine that from today, um, that we would ever get that kind of unanimous vote on, on regulating a major industry. What corporations do you worry about the most right now? Like if you're top three that you're kind of, that give you the willies for the sort of 
causal and responsibility denial, the industrial strength denial? Who do you like? Who keeps you up? At well, I, certainly the fossil fuel industry does. I mean, there's nothing else I can see on the horizon where the threat is as dramatic as as we face from climate change, and so. Uh, you know, and, and and I shouldn't speak of the fossil fuel industry too much as just a single industry because it's a lot of different industries. Uh, but certainly, their continued um, denial in some cases, their their continued investment, and in, as if fossil fuels has a bright future. In, in other cases, those are those are threatening the the future of the entire human civilization and every living system on it. I mean, that's absolutely what, what I have to, you know, stay focused on first. Now, that's not certainly the end of it. I mean, I, every now and then I think, okay, if I were to write another book in 10 years and 20 years, which industries would I be featuring? Um, I think certainly the opioid industry uh, would be one that, that would uh, provide me a lot of material in, in terms of causing this huge problem and, and then the pattern repeating of others coming to them and trying to get them to stop uh, and their response being in, in many cases re- denial. Um, and then I think a lot of, of uh, you know, social media stuff because we're, we just don't really know yet um, exactly the problems that are getting caused and how we're going to respond to it. I think that's going to be a really interesting issue going forward. Yeah. And it, it seems that, that the big tech companies, right, are, which I mean, could seemingly play a really important role with the code uh, with the tracking with the with with the covid virus and 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 you know helping us figure out how you know who's been exposed to what and where they are and who their contacts are but it also does seem like that i mean at what point do these things almost become like uh they seem like they should become almost like public utilities because you need them now Right, like to operate. I mean, it, it, it's it's hard to imagine living your life without Google or Facebook, right? right. And, and right. so the the, you, the sheer ubiquity of their influence. I mean, it, again, there's wonderful things that can happen. I think with these things, but there is a sense in which their ubiquitous presence and influence mm-hmm. seems to set us up for the kind of problems that you're dealing with in in the in, in your book, Industrial Strength Denial, right? Right. And and I think mentioning public utilities is exactly right. That basically, you know, we, we've seen this before. We saw this in the electric industry. And um, once companies succeed to the point where they there really is no competition or there's you can't have competition and, and they become monopolies, either you break them up or you regulate them. And so I think that, you know, we'll, we'll be taking one of those two paths with a lot of these big tech companies that we have become so dependent on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's and the challenge, right? I mean, I remember watching Mark Zuckerberg being interviewed by a, a Senate panel and, and Orrin Hatch, I think, was saying, well, you do all these things for free. And he said, how can you offer all these services for free? And he, Mark Zuckerberg just looks back and says, well, <laughs> we sell ads. And I'm thinking, I don't want, I don't think Orrin Hatch is the guy that's got enough on the ball to, to regulate and keep the... It, it, but also, isn't the other issue with regulation, too, that, that oftentimes big c- conglomerates welcome regulation because they'll get their people to help write the regulation in ways well, that, that, that keep that that kind of basically marginalize their smaller competitors. So they're the only people that can have all the lawyers and all the compliance. And so the, oftentimes the regulate the, the people that you're regulating are writing the regulations in ways that that maximize their own profits and influence. 
Well, certainly the the regulators, uh, the regulations can be skewed, and certainly they are skewed. But but I do want to point out one thing that when if you look at the model of utilities regulation, which has been by no means by uh, by no means been perfect, what happens is you get a law passed that authorizes a commission or an agency that will continually regulate this industry, so then they can develop the kind of expertise they need and to really track it on a much more detailed basis. So utilities regulation is usually a a lot more intimate than the kind of general consumer or, or environmental regulation that um, uh, we've also been talking about and, and that I also write about. But it, it, it can all certainly be corrupted. There's no doubt about that. And so you have to make sure that you make it as transparent as possible. And, and ideally, you'll have a lot of voices involved in these regulatory processes, including those that represent the public interest or, or environmental issues or whatnot. It's interesting because you you have you know it, it, the I was just talking with a, a couple of guests about this this week that we have this when you look at the electorate right you have I mean the Howard Schultz kind of Starbucks campaign right premised on a hey, I'm a sort of socially liberal economically politically conservative like that's like zero percent of the electorate right and they all ride the Acela in the Northeast right like um, <laughs> but basically what you have is you have a big group of people that are liberal socially and liberal politically and economically you have a big chunk that are conservative socially and culturally and conservative politically and economically and then you have this other big swath that's conservative culturally and politically I mean I mean conservative culturally and, and socially but liberal around issues of politics and economics and so this is I think of the person at the Tea Party rally with the sign government, keep your hands off my Medicare kind of problem, mm-hmm. right? This is, <laughs> right. So is that the kind of swing demographic for this kind of, for, for the kind of change you're hoping to see around corporate accountability and responsibility? Because you, you, it seems that you have uh, these people, the, you know, the, the, it's the it's the Obama Trump voter or the people that supported Bernie and then went and voted for Trump. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. there's a kind of populism that seems like they can kind of go either way, right? And, and there's a kind of populism that seems to be sensitive to the kind of regulations and, and, and interventions you like to see. But then they also could swing to Trump, who's, who's, who's seeming to populate the swamp and not drain it. Right, <laughs> right, right. This is the challenging thing about this demographic, right? That, that, like, that, it seems like the, the most pivotal group can go either way. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. That you know, certainly the populists you've got you've got them on the left and the right, and they can flip either way. I mean, I, I quote some uh, heads of, of coal industry uh, in the book, and they're ranting against government. They're also ranting against corporate America because they say you know they think it's been too liberal on issues of climate change. Um, so yeah, it is it is difficult. I mean, I I don't really necessarily think about this. Uh, in terms of what demographic to go after, because, you know, I don't think of it as a political activist. I, I, I'm telling the story that I think needs to be told. Um, but, but clearly, I think we are, uh, we need to build social trust in, in government and in, and hopefully in corporations because they're properly regulated by government. Um, and the lack of trust, I think, it just, it makes it so difficult for a society to, take action against huge problems. And certainly before even COVID, we had climate change. And if there was ever a time for us to try to link arms and figure out a way to work together, you know, it was in, it's, it is in response to climate change. Now it's also in response to, to COVID-19. Um, so I, I don't think that it's necessarily any 
sliver of the of the demographic that needs to change. I think we need a, a general sense of of you know how are we going to build trust? How are we going to build the mechanisms of trust, the institutions that we can that we can trust, um, and go from there. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up social trust because Freakonomics did an episode on the whole issue of social trust a couple of years ago, and they talked about how Italy, which does not have a reputation for great government, right? <laughs> but there are but there are townships in Italy that have far more functional governments than, than some of the best local, local local governments in the United States, and then there are others that are far worse, right? Even worse than the Italian average, and so much of it is social trust, right? Mm-hmm. That. that the more social trust you have, the better government works, the more you're likely to hire somebody more qualified, not just hire your brother-in-law because you know him or, or you know, mm-hmm. or, or your sister-in-law because, you know, even, you actually hire the best person that they're, they're, that, you know, and, and they were saying that basically like on the social trust scale, like, you know, some of the lower end is like whatever, uh, 18% or something, Brazil, the higher end is like Scandinavia and the 70% kind of social trust scale. And the United States and the UK tend to be in the middle with the, in, in the 30 you know, the 30 percentile-ish kind of thing. And, and that, that makes, that's what makes kind of making a big liberal democratic state like ours is, is so challenging to govern and to regulate, right? Because we're just all the, all the diversity, all the, the, the size and the breadth, like the social trust thing is really hard to, to cultivate. And that's the kind of thing that, that right, that would enable us to engage in collective projects together for the common good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And and so then maybe getting back to COVID-19, maybe we will look back on this as a time that built social trust because we had to start to trust each other to figure out how to move forward. And, and who knows, maybe then we can build further on that. And you can hear me right now doing my best to keep hope alive here. <laughs> You're, I, I like it. You're you're a sweet kid, Barbara. Never change. Now, <laughs> I like the optimism. Uh, well, so, you know, you 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 got to keep it going if you're going to stay in these issues for a long period of time. What are the things that give you the most hope around these kinds of developments? When you think about uh, the possibility of stemming the tide and actually us really having a higher social trust model and kind of acting in ways that protect our freedoms and our safeties and, and human flourishing. Like what, what are the bright spots on the horizon that you look to and say, wow, this is the kind of thing that makes me think I'm not wasting my time writing about this. Yeah. Well, you know, let, let me spin your question over a little bit and talk about it in terms of climate change, because, you know, that's the issue I worked on for decades. And even while concern about it at the federal level was coming and going, we still saw lots of states putting forth laws that were trying to limit emissions, laws that were requiring a a growing amount of renewable energy. We saw uh, a lot of cities getting involved. Um, It it became a time where I really came to appreciate our federal system because then when you have a dysfunctional federal government on a certain issue, you can still see things happening on the local and state basis. And and so all of that happened. um, And as a result, and, and also what other nations were doing, which was critical. We've seen enormous technological progress with respect to to clean energy and and energy storage and whatnot. Um, And now we are seeing, and and particularly before COVID-19, we have been seeing an, an enormous rise in alarm, appropriate alarm around climate change. And we have seen that largely coming from youth. And I have to say that that gives me uh, enormous hope because that's a huge change from the way things were in the past where this issue got ignored. Now, 
you know, I hope that all of that leads to government efforts and, and leads to more social trust because we have a greater recognition that we have a con- common enemy in the form of global warming and that we're going to work together to try to solve that. Well, from your lips to uh, God's ears, I hope. Uh, Barbara, thanks for writing this important book and for raising these issues. And thanks for spending a few minutes talking with me about it. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Scott. It has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.